And welcome back to the question and answer period. I have um, a couple of announcements before we begin. Next week's session is uh, our environmentally sensitive areas of southwestern Alberta being sacrificed for wind power. But tonight, in a kind of related topic, um, I guess because it's connected to the environment, tonight at the Helen Schuler Nature Center, um, with a reception at 6 p.m. and presentation at 7 p.m., there is a nature talk called Why Grasslands Matter. A panel of experts, including Craig Harding, Megan Jensen, Adam Knowlton, and Leita Pezderek, who we've heard from already, uh, will be uh, speaking. So you might want to take that in as a second talk of the day. Um, well, I've lost my way. You can find other SACPA sessions at the SACPA website, www.sacpa.ca. And remember that you can hear audio and podcast sessions from that website. I remind you again that the suggestion box is open and we do take all of your suggestions quite seriously. I am a member of the program committee and can tell you that we search hard for speakers to fulfill your suggestions. Um, so, coming back to Middle East Societies in Crisis with Dr. Sean McMahon, we hope that you've had a chance to think about the questions that you wish to ask him. And um, I'm looking for the microphone. There it is. Okay, and I have my microphone here, so he's coming up with his coffee cup which I noticed he grabbed a lot during his talk, but never actually sipped from. It's an affectation, it's an affectation he says. Okay. <laughs> so, once again, Dr. Sean McMahon. John, Larry Alford here. Thank you for a wonderful, enlightening presentation. I wrote down uh, three or four things and I hope you'll take a comment on one of them. So 27 trillion created since 2007, I thought. It seems to me that capital at that level is being created free for some people to just lay their hands on. Yep. And I wonder if that has some effect on supply demand and maybe the negative interest rates that we're starting to see comment or thought of in some parts of the world and if you have any thought on uh, relevance to the Weimar Republic of Germany, 1920s era. Anything there? Thank you. Well, thank, you for your, thank you for your question. Um, there's quite a bit there. Before I speak specifically to those questions, because it was said to me a number of times before I started eating, I want to be very clear. I don't want to leave this room with uh, an overwhelming sense of pessimism. A crisis always has two aspects. 
It is always an interruption of the status quo, but it is also always an opportunity. In the case of the last 30 years, for example, the Canadian working class. The Canadian working class has seen its real wages eroded, indexed against inflation. The average worker in Canada earns now less than she did in 1971. We've seen real wages eroded. We have seen debt peonage explode. A crisis is an opportunity to change those relations. A crisis is, yes, it requires adaptation. It is an eruption of very accelerated change. But the change itself need not be detrimental to us. What matters is how organized we are to take advantage of the opportunity that's presented. To your question, yes, since 2007, if your name was Lloyd Blankenfeld or Jamie Dimon, yes, you got free money. From 1945 until 1971, that was, those are the halcyon days, right? That's the Keynesian moment. That was the moment in which production prevailed, where cities like Detroit thrived because the United States made commodities. Since 1971, and the movement to free exchange rates, primarily, what we have is the neoliberal moment. The neoliberal moment is the domination of finance capital, of banks, of the money that fritters around the world by the click of a button. Since 2007, those with access to all of that artificial money have been the big banks of the world, whether it's JP Morgan, Deutsche Bank. Those were the institutions bailed out in 2007. In any crisis, in any crisis, capital in some form has to be destroyed. It wasn't destroyed in the money form, which means it's destroyed in the commodity form. That's why our real wages are being destroyed and attacked. That's why we face, say, housing price inflation. Housing price inflation, farmland price inflation. Those are specific national appearances in the Canadian political economy of all of that artificial money. The interest rates, according to some economists, of course, the interest rate is the price of money. Price for them is set by supply and demand. When the price of money is zero or negative, that's an appearance of the fact that there is no demand for all of that money. Those of us who have to borrow money, we're maxed out. What, can you, the, the Parliamentary Budget Office says what? Average Canadian, 178% indebted now? Globally, World Bank announced two years ago, globally, global indebtedness, 225%. For every dollar we make, we owe somebody else 225. We we owe a bank somewhere 225. What's interesting about the interest rates given 
what I talked about today. Since the currency deflation in Egypt in 2016, the interest rate went from about 8.5% all the way up to 19 and 3 quarters percent. This is not unlike the Volcker shock of the late 70s and early 80s in the United States and Canada. The reason interest rates are increased to those astronomical levels is because the banks want to be paid and they compel productive capital to then intensify its exploitation of the working class. Because that productive capital has to service its own debt at those interest rates. So it's a means of intensifying that exploitation, of augmenting that social control, but done through a mechanism that most of us are told is entirely depoliticized, the interest rate. Thank you. I'm Maria Fitzpatrick. And uh, as I listened to you speak, I thought, I need to go and audit your class. Uh, so I'll check with you later when oh, your class you. is so I can come and sit in. Uh, but uh, I think at least what it said to me is the division between the 1% and the 99%. Mm -hmm. uh, I see it uh, not uh, just in uh, Egypt or, or those countries. I see that very much happening here. Mm -hmm. And I guess my question to you is, you said it's an opportunity. How do we utilize that opportunity to change it? <laughs> and you may or may not have that answer, but I'd like to know what that answer is. Thank you. It's an excellent question. <laughs> yes, when you say the 1% and the 99%, I hear the concentration and centralization of wealth. Those are two processes that have been going on for decades. The way I understand social relations is that every strength is also simultaneously a weakness. I'll go back to the issue of indebtedness for a moment. The statement, of course, is that when I owe you $100, that's my problem. When I owe you $100,000, that's your problem. <laughs> the level of indebtedness globally, and if you're at all interested, there is a movement called the Debt Collective, which argues that they can't, we can't possibly pay our way out of debt peonage. We're not supposed to. The last, thing, the, last thing, the last thing my visa, my credit card company wants me to do is actually pay off my debt. Okay? Rather than struggle in that Sisyphusian task of paying it off, the debt collective actually argues that we should solidaritize and all collectively refuse to pay. Isn't that nice? Huh? You, you want... The credit rating means nothing if we all have a bad credit rating. So there, there's a wonderful idea, and here, here I, I really don't want to leave the room with an overwhelming sense of pessimism. Here's a, here's a cause for optimism. When, in the Keynesian moment, when production was emphasized, workers organized into these things called unions, right? 
even historically, we created combinations, and of course, what the state do, passed anti-combination laws. But we organized into unions when that was the site of struggle. Now, I think increasingly, the site of struggle is indebtedness. Just look around, uh, the production's dispersed. We, we don't really come together in many factory settings anymore, particularly not in the service industry. So rather than try to fight last century's battle with unionized workers in a factory, I quite like the idea, no, what we need to do is organize as debtors. Because we, we, we may differ based on, <laughs> we may differ based on uh, race, gender, sexual orientation, ability, disability, our age, whatever. Almost all of us are indebted somehow. If there's a unifying factor, it is our indebtedness. So yes, as long as we continue to pay, that is a point of strength for capital. As soon as we organize and refuse to, then it's a point of weakness that we can exploit collectively. Thank you. Hi, my name is Peter Beal. Uh, I've got a two-part question in one way. Uh, the increased buyback of shares by large corporations is actually increasing the divide between, what do you call it, the working class and the capitalist class. Yes. Uh, and in one way, I'd like to comment on that, but also the idea of um, the globalization of corporations is starting to divide them away from nations. They don't care about, they want to get free of nations, the corporation. So with the rise of what you call mercenary private army groups uh, and the, the, the mechanization saying people are surplus, uh, yes. can we see more, let's say, killing squads in nations, especially the underdeveloped ones, where they're just getting rid of the surplus people? Okay, those are, that's three, I think. All right, very good. Um, huh. First, buybacks, stock buybacks. Yes, this was, of course, legalized by the former Fed chair, Alan Greenspan. Uh, quite simply, it's insider trading. I don't see it as anything more elaborate than that. It's a way to knowingly inflate the price of the shares you control. I see it as a mark, not of the strength of finance capital, but rather its weakness. Globalization of corporations. Uh, capital has never had a strong national affinity. Uh, as I tell my students, right, the, on, the, <laughs> the only color capital cares about is green. That being said, it does instrumentalize the state, the state form. So the state is necessary for capital and for it to accumulate. In our moment, you certainly see um, competitive destruction, that race to the bottom, where capital, of course, will say, uh, what, what kind of inducements are you going to extend to me so that I will put my uh, factory in, in your state, your society? whether it's Ford in Ontario, or Kenny here declaring open for business, whether it's restriction on um, environmental pollutions, deunionization. Yes, those are all forms of attacks on the global working class. But they also get contested around the world. Uh, the, 
There are union members right now jailed in Sri Lanka. So I, I think to understand that facet and, and what you called the globalization of production, we were talking about it over the, over the break. The reason that you have, globalization is not a cause. Globalization is an effect of capital trying to escape a strong working class. The reason the global economy had to be opened in the 1970s was because capital had no other response to strong workers, particularly in industrialized North America and Western Europe, that could demand wage increases. So what it had to do was go global in order to pit those workers, say, against the labor force in China. So the financialization of everything is not a mark of strength. It's a mark of it running from fighting us directly. The privatization, you talked about mercenaries. The neoliberal moment, the last 40 years, <laughs> if anything defines the neoliberal moment, it's privatization. Privatization of healthcare, privatization of education. Mercenaries, people like uh, Blackwater, these loathsome human beings. Uh, Eric Prince. Are, are you familiar with Blackwater? Rebranded themselves Z. Eric Prince. You know who Prince's sister is? Who? Betsy DeVos, the current Secretary of Education. <laughs> this is an instance Mercenaries are a privatization of violence. In that sense, they fit perfectly in the neoliberal moment. And you don't need to, you don't need to, be, a, you don't need to be a dirty materialist Marxist. Just, just read Machiavelli. Machiavelli tells mercenaries are bad because they have a vested interest in more and more war. They don't get their field bonuses if you're at peace. This, they are another appearance of capital's necessary shift to more and more despotic violence. Can't get us, when it can't get us to consent to our exploitation, it coerces us. Uh, Maureen Hawkins. Um, I'll preface this by saying that I teach English at the university, and this last semester, I've been teaching modern drama from the 1890s up to the 50s. You're not gonna, did I, did I end any sentences with mm -hmm. prepositions while I was talking? <laughs> no, was I good? I tried. Look, you want, me to, you want me to talk about your grammar? You have to pay me. That is me. <laughs> I like that, I like, no free labor out of me. All right. But what I noticed with many of the plays was how so many of the social and economic and political circumstances around plays leading up to the first and up to the second world war are being replicated today. I know you don't want to leave us with a, a pessimistic outlook, but I suppose I've got a two-prong question. One is, um, are we heading in some of those same directions? And two, why is Trump, if he's part of this capitalist class, why did he or his, uh, those who um, are his so-called advisors, 
why are they throwing a spanner in the current uh, global economic system, um, and how do the two work together? Okay. Thank you, Marie. Boy, asking me a question on literature. Uh, uh, the same. In the same direction, let me see. I, frankly, when I talk to my students, say, in the senior level in political economy, I, in this moment, I always direct them to Dickens. That, uh, uh, let's read some hard times, I think, to understand the condition of the global working class. I'm not, I often think, in fact, in our moment, that the working class actually has to battle against many of the dominant cultural forms. That we can't find, uh, I, it, it drives me nuts, every superhero movie that comes out. Uh, that, that I always, where, where, where are the average workers? Like, I don't need to wait around for some hero to save us. I want us to do it collectively. I'm, yeah, I, I can't speak very much more to the literary aspect of it, other than to say I think, I think we have to consciously search out um, alternative forms of music, alternative movies, alternative news, because that's the only way we're going to develop a critical understanding of the world that, that isn't just what they want us to believe about the world. As for Trump, Trump himself is what American society has vomited up. He is the personification of a society in profound crisis. He himself does not matter, however, in the sense that he represents some prevailing social interests. The reason they seem to have thrown a spanner into the global political economy, as you said, is because the global political economy no longer works for them. The global political economy that of the IMF, the World Bank, what is now the WTO, the United Nations. These are all institutions built in the immediate post-war period. Again, that was the period of Keynesian American production. That is not the moment now. Moreover, the reason why, for example, they're going after China. The United States used to be the factory of the world. It is no longer. China is the factory of the world. That is also why global power is shifting to China. You want to, be a, you, want to, you want to be a great power in the international system? You produce stuff. The United States is no longer the factory of the world, but it is the banker of the world. And back to the original question, the intensification of trade war with China, and we should make, okay, here goes my cause for optimism, we should make we, we shouldn't be, trade wars and currency wars preface shooting wars. The intensification of the trade war with China is in fact the banker of the world trying to get the Chinese state to further intensify the exploitation of the Chinese working class. 
and the Chinese state is desperately afraid of its working class. Since 2007, Europe, North America has imposed austerity on workers. What's the one state in the global political economy that actually pursued stimulus spending? China. Why? Because it could not allow all of those workers to be thrown out of work like American workers have, like Canadian workers have, like German workers have. Here's a fantastic statistic for you. Between 2009 and 2012, the Chinese state consumed more cement than the United States did in the 20th century. That is how much it built. It built entire cities to keep its working class employed. Now, in an attempt to get that artificial money transformed into real social, real social control, it has to be done at the expense of the Chinese working class. And the Chinese state, as clearly pushing back, is unwilling to be the instrument of that. We have, we have three more questions. Thank you. And thank you for an excellent presentation. Yeah, it was a bit of a downer, I will admit. but. Maybe we just came here for fake news, I don't know. Anyway, I'd like you to bring it a little bit closer to home. We in Alberta just went through a provincial election in which the motto for one party was jobs, the economy, pipeline, the other side working for all Albertans. We've heard the terms in the last couple weeks that we need a war room, that we, last weekend, I didn't know what was happening, but there was a war on fun apparently in Alberta of late. So, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd just like you to bring it closer to Alberta because we're kind of an oil state and uh, province, I should say, or not a state. Anyway, the local for what, what's in it for us. Maybe it's a downer too, I don't know. Uh. <laughs> but, just after she tells me I have to condense my answers, I get this way, yeah. Uh, Uh, Alberta society, oils, economy. One, very quickly, I am convinced, I'm, I'm curious how it, somehow the conservatives have seemed to monopolize the idea that they know how to run the economy. They ran it for 44 years. I don't know how they can still make this claim. That being said, in the case of Alberta, if you read the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, it has to stay in the ground, period. If the people who are desperate to have jobs want their kids to have clean drinking water and clean air to breathe, it has to stay in the ground. Now, interestingly enough, this does put the interests of workers in Alberta in an antagonistic relation with the rest of the workers in the world. As I said, oil helps them to mechanize production, which actually then makes other workers unemployed. So by pulling it out of the ground here, which provides employment for workers in Alberta, that means they're effectively going to help displace workers, say, in China. So that is often why that, that antagonism is actually encouraged. Like racism, like nationalism, it pits workers against worker rather than recognizing our common enemy. There's that being said, I do understand and I'm empathetic to why workers in Alberta want to not believe, say, in capitalogenic climate change. I understand that. I don't think people who don't accept it, I don't think they're stupid. I don't think they're idiots or moronic. I understand that if I tell you in 20 years your kids can't breathe the air and can't eat clean food, 
that's fine, but you're going to tell me, but I need to be able to feed them today. So I'm, I'm empathetic, but ultimately what it shows me, fact, the oil in Alberta is obsolete. It can't be pulled out of the ground at a, at, at, at a, even, even, even if the earth could sustain it. The discount at which it has to be sold, it's not going to be profitable. Can, this is a crisis in Alberta. What we were offered by one of the parties is a return to 20 years ago. In, in the case of the other, we were just, what, given a consumption tax that further immiserates workers who've had their wages frozen. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll end right there. <laughs> yeah. Next question. Andrew Blair is my name. If you were invited to be an advisor to Trump, what would you advise? <laughs> try, to, try to answer that in 30 seconds. And without profanity. And without profanity. Uh, one, one, of my, one of my good friends uh, years ago ran for an ML, MLA seat in Edmonton. And I think he had aspirations for federal politics because years ago he worked for Sheila Copps. He and I had a similar conversation. He once said, well, I would want you to be my advisor. And I said, I wouldn't want the job. That's, that is not, I don't see my politics as somehow reforming a system that's fundamentally antagonistic to my interests and the interests of the people with whom I associate. Last question. I've been sitting here for half an hour trying to figure out how to condense this. <laughs> and as a card mem carrying member of the working class, and I can show you the card, um, I disagree with your basic analysis. Capital does not care. Capital does not care whether you work or not. Capital concentrates itself mindlessly. And so what you wind up is with a situation where you have a huge number of working people, small businesses, lump them in there as well, who are feeling incredibly precarious. Their jobs are going, their livelihoods are going, you get into small towns, their towns are going. And as a result, around the world, they become more reactionary. Capital is, does not care. What Capital does question? not care about any of this. What's your question? I'm setting the situation. I'm going to ask them to respond to it. So you get into the Middle East, and we'll go back to the Middle East because that's what we're here to talk about. You have the religious fundamentalisms of a people who are under immense social and economic stress. And unless that changes, you will not see any particular positive change. Okay. Uh, that capital does not care. Uh, it cares about accumulation. That's why it exists. Now, you can either understand accumulation in terms of money, that it just wants more and more zeros and ones in an account. I think that's the wrong way to understand it, because ultimately capital is a social relation, so it has to be about a social relation. So that's why I argue that it is about the social, the, the form of control of work, the social form of control of work, and that's why it's interested in imposing ever more work on the working class. I can certainly see the statement that is, yes, in, in the neoliberal moment, workers who are desperate, uh, yeah, this explains the, the, the rise of religiosity, certainly. 
but the rise in religiosity is by no means exclusive to the Middle East. Um, as workers there have been impoverished, for example, when the state does not provide social services, but the mosque does, when the Muslim Brotherhood is a provider of what we consider basic social infrastructure, then I understand why people would support the group, why they would attend sermons at the mosque, and why they would subscribe. The point that you make about people's desperation, this, of course, is, uh, I'll be an, I'm going to conclude by being an egghead, Karl Polanyi's book, The Great Transformation. He argues that society finds ways to defend itself against the freeing of the market. The society gets ravaged by the freeing of the market. And in that case, Nazism was a response against it. How does, one how does a society protect itself against, and in this case, it's market fundamentalism. That is certainly a, a current of analysis. I have some sympathies with it. But when I read it, it doesn't show me how to get out of it other than a cataclysmic war first. But yes, I do think that some, some look towards we say, miracles, the hope in the miracle, or just a faith in the market that this time it will deliver us. That is certainly one response on the part of workers in the working class. There's the other response, clearly I hear closer to this, that says, no, I have no faith in anything, and I certainly understand that capital doesn't give a shit about me, but I am interested in us organizing because that I see as an effective way of challenging what's being done. Thank you, Dr. Sean McMahon. That concludes our...